Hello once again. Thanks for joining us on Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and uh, it's good to have your company as always. Coming up on this episode 378, uh, what really killed the dinosaurs? It was actually uh, dental problems. I think that was pretty much it. We're going to find out. Uh, also, some uh, planets that are um, uh, orbiting a star that is kind of like ours, and they're all doomed. Are we talking about ourselves or somewhere else? We'll find out about that. And some audience questions about Andromeda, gravity. We never get questions about gravity, do we? And a place called Tidbinbilla. We'll get into all of that very, very soon on this episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, and joining us to unravel all of those mysteries is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Good to see you. Looking good a bit blurry today, but uh, apart from that, you're all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And maybe you need new glasses. Oh, it could be. Yeah. Actually, I got <laughs> some new glasses not very long ago. Interesting. Yeah. Too. Well, I was going to get new glasses, but then they found out something else was wrong. So, um, yeah, we're dealing with that. Bother. No, no. Yeah. Actually, the, the optometrist said to me, um, I was going to uh, recommend new glasses because your vision's deteriorated slightly, but now I've got a bigger fish. Oh, <laughs> something bigger to deal with. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, so, pres- you know, the pressure in your eyes? Um, yes. Yeah, apparently, yeah. mine's gone up. So, we're, we're looking into it. Boom, boom. Uh, oh, Anyway, you can solve that. You can you can solve that these days just by using drops. Apparently, well, I am. Okay. Seems to be working. It's all a bit weird. Mm. Anyway, I'm sure everyone needed to know that. <laughs> That's all right. As long as it stops at your eyes, we're quite happy. <laughs> yes. Now you've got some travels coming up, haven't you? You you're a busy boy. Uh, yes, actually, I'm off to um, to a place called Sea Lake in uh, in Victoria, uh, ah. which is a state to the south of us here. Uh, although it's very rural, Victoria. I fly to Mildura and then drive for two hours, and I get to Sea Lake, and there is a uh, an astronomy weekend there. Uh, it's a big festival, actually, with uh, a few professional astronomers and lots of amateur astronomers and the general public and. Uh, a good time will be had by all. So I'm doing a talk, I think, and uh, and uh, discussion and all that stuff. Mm. But then, uh, actually, the weekend after that, I'm going off to another one, uh, and I'm off again to New Zealand. Uh, and if I remember rightly, it is the 100th anniversary of um, one of the Astronomical Societies, I can't remember which, might be the RASNZ. Yeah, it might be. But there again, it might be the Auckland. I'll check that. <laughs> I should find out, shouldn't I, before I go. That's you see, that's that's more than that's more than a week away. So it's way below the horizon at the moment. But it mm. it will arrive very soon. Yeah, just but, don't so I've, uh, I've been... just don't do a US president and get Switzerland mixed up with Sweden. That would you know that wouldn't go down well. <laughs> No, I know. There's all that stuff. Um, I was talking to some Kiwis this week, actually, or uh, uh, in interacting with them in a meeting of space uh, agency personnel, which took place down in Canberra. I was virtually joining that to talk a little bit about 
dark and quiet skies and didn't have much to say, but it was very interesting. These are all space regulators. These are the people who make the rules. Mm. Uh, and so they want to know what uh, what satellites are doing to astronomers. So that's uh, what my part in that was. Yeah, well, that's a big issue at the moment. Um, just a, a little a li- interesting statistic about New Zealand, uh, and I, I hate to give them a hard time. They've had a pretty rough time of it sporting-wise of late. But um, I, I uh, got uh, a news report the other day from the Australian Bureau, Bureau of Statistics. This might interest people in other countries. But um, of the New Zealand population of 5 million, what percentage of those live in Australia? <laughs> Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I'd ha- have to guess maybe 20% is probably uh, something huge. It's ten per- about 10%. Over 500,000 yeah. Kiwis live in Australia yeah. as Australian oh, residents. Australia. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is 10% of their population. Ah, that's right. That's, 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 that, that's actually quite a surprising number. Yeah. But you know who's moving here fastest? I don't know. In the greatest numbers at the moment, the Nepalese. Oh, okay. Um, not from New Zealand, though. No, no. The the Nepalese are the, the ones that are... From Nepal. Yeah. They're yes. moving here yeah. faster than any other nationality at the moment, which, again, quite surprised me. Enough of that. That's our little planet. Let's um, let's sort of... Well, let's stick to this planet because um, 66 million years ago, uh, a big rock the size of Mount Everest struck the planet at what is now the Gulf of Mexico. And, uh, of course, uh, we all know that that was something that led to an extinction-level event, uh, which pretty well wiped out the dinosaurs. But there's been a lot of debate, Fred, about what exactly was it that uh, finished them off. Was it the tsunami that went around the planet three times? Was it the change in environment? Was it the um, dental plaque problems created by the vegetation that changed? <laughs> now there's a, a there's a new theory which seems to have quite a bit of substance behind it. It, it does. That's right. And this comes from uh, astronomers in um, actually most of them seem to be in Belgium. There's a few UK names there as well. Uh, it's a paper in Nature Geoscience, which is entitled uh, Chicxulub Impact Winter Sustained by Fine Silicate Dust. And that really tells you the story uh, in one. Uh, so what these scientists have done uh, have been to look very closely at some of the deposits uh, which we find in in that boundary, um, which... Uh, used to be called the Cretaceous Tertiary Boundary. It's now called the Cretaceous Paleogene Boundary because I think that's a bit more specific. It's Mm. a layer in the rock strata. And that's actually what, uh, it's that layer in which iridium was found uh, now 50 years ago nearly. Uh, And sorry, not quite 50, probably more like 41, 42 years ago. Uh, That iridium was um, what gave rise to the theory that um, this was an asteroid. Uh, and it's because iridium is mostly found in extraterrestrial bodies. Uh, and so um, that sort of gave the rise to it. So what's happened is uh, a, m- a more uh, detailed investigation of that boundary uh, has revealed that there's some stuff in that they didn't really know about. Uh, mm. Let me read the first little bit of the 
abstract for this paper. So this is the real thing. Uh, it's, as I said, in Nature Geoscience, the Chicxulub impact is thought to have triggered a global winter at the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary uh, 66 million years ago. Yet, the climatic consequences of the various debris injected into the atmosphere following the impact remain unclear, and the exact killing mechanisms of the mass extinction remain poorly constrained. So uh, here we present, they say, paleoclimate simulations based on sedimentological constraints. That means things they find in the boundary layer uh, from an expanded uh, boundary deposit in North Dakota, United States, to evaluate the relative and combined effects of impact-generated silicate dust, that's pulverized rock, basically, and sulfur, as well as soot from wildfires on the post impact climate. And what they've found is that the, uh, the, the distribution of silicate dust, uh, which is fine dust about one microm- micrometer uh, to eight micrometers in diameter, and they say that's larger than has been previously, uh, previously estimated. Mm-hmm. And they think uh, that that dust, because it's, it's sort of very fine dust, Uh, could have stayed in the atmosphere for 15 years. Um, And they are suggesting that that would push down the average temperature on the surface by 15 degrees Celsius. Uh, And that's significant because um, the average global temperature at the moment, the average, if you average it across the whole world, is 15 degrees plus 15. So if you push it down by 15 degrees, you've got zero, basically. Yeah, Uh, You've got freezing. Um, and th- they say um, it, this would have blocked, uh, this is an, another aspect of it, this would have blocked photosynthesis uh, for the, the amount of time that they they say this would have occurred would have been two years effectively, 620 days after the impact. And so um, that means things wouldn't grow. If, if you don't have any photosynthesis, uh, first of all, you're not churning out uh, oxygen uh, from carbon dioxide because uh, that's what photosynthesis does. Um, but also you're you're stifling the plants, basically. And mm. things that live on plants uh, don't like not to find any plants. Uh, and they say that might have directly caused extinctions of dinosaurs and other groups uh, that couldn't adapt to the conditions. Uh, and I'm quoting now from the Cosmos article rather than the original article, which was written by Jacinta Bowler. Um, so... It's, sorry, go ahead, Andrew. No, no, I was just saying that this is um, probably not a huge surprise in the scheme of things. I mean, that, that impact uh, caused all sorts of catastrophic things to happen, not not, not just you know the initial impact, that, that, that rebound that uh, happened in the Gulf of Mexico or whatever was there at that time, uh, and, and the, the tsunami, I think, went around the world, what, three times, five times, some... Massive number, like oh that. yeah, probably, <laughs> yeah, that's right. and and was all like of that two miles uh, high or some some horrible number. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. It's it, what surprises me is it didn't wipe out life completely. Oh yes, exactly. Uh, I was just going to make that comment. You're absolutely right. You know the the the, the trauma that that the Earth suffered uh, mm. because of all that. Um, yeah. Uh, the the um, another couple of quotes from the the paper here. Uh, si- simulated changes in photosynthetic active solar radiation 
support a dust-induced photosynthetic shutdown for almost two years. That's kind of what I said, but in yeah. different language after the impact. Uh, but that, and then they go on to say, we suggest that together with additional cooling contributions from soot and sulfur, this is consistent with the catastrophic collapse of primary productivity in the aftermath of the uh, Chicxulub impact. In, in other words, nothing was growing. Uh, mm. Basically, it shut down uh, growth. But there, there is a subtlety, uh, though, um, which is pointed out in the Cosmos article as well, um, that the models that they uh, that these uh, people don't <laughs> just... Sorry that about two, that. That's two weeks in a row. <laughs> yeah, two weeks in a row, yeah. yeah. Uh, two two different relatives. Um, the, the, the models are... Um, they, they suggest uh, that the, the recovery from that, uh, so they've, they've also modeled the recovery as well as the kind of shutdown, mm. uh, the recovery would have been faster in the Southern Hemisphere. And that apparently matches uh, you know, the evidence that uh, when you look at the evidence from the geological record, uh, the, the extinctions were fewer in the southern hemisphere, so it's really a, a really interesting, uh, you know, a, an interesting little snippet that kind of, I guess, adds weight to their model. Uh, that if if you if you can suggest that there'd have been a faster recovery in the south, and that's what the evidence uh, shows, then you, you've got some credibility with your model. Mm. Um, of course, the the you know the, the 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 geography of the planet was different then as well. Uh, because um, a lot of the the continents, uh, the stuff that's now uh, in the north, was at that time heading northwards rather than being as far north as it is. Uh, so the breakup of Gondwana, just to give you a bit of context there, if I remember rightly, was 160 million years ago. So that had already happened, right? Uh, but the 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 map was still not really uh, like the Earth is today. 66 million years is plenty of time for plate tectonics to shift the model, to, you know, shift the globe of the Earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I imagine that impact would have had a bit of an effect on plate tectonics too. Uh, yeah, probably. Um, I mean, it's thought to have stimulated volcanoes as well. That's one mm. of the other, um, you know, the other lines of research that we see in that. Yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a, a re really interesting paper. I mean, it's, it, isn't it extraordinary that, um, you know, 40 years after it was suggested, we're still finding out about this impact and seeing different aspects to it because of the devastation that it caused. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it, uh, you mentioned it, um, the, uh, the event basically took us out of the Cretaceous period into the uh, Paleogene period. Yep. yep. I read a story the other day which um, is of a similar ilk. That we are now, according to some scientists, in a new epoch which yeah. they're calling the Anthropocene period. Anthropocene, that's right. And that is uh, human-induced climate change. Uh, yeah. They're saying we've reached the point of no return and that we are now in a new epoch which has been created by human intervention. So, and, and future geologists will see evidence of that. They'll see a boundary mm. um, of, of exactly the same sort of thing, except it's all soot from... You know, industrial coal. revolution, coal burning, and, and fossil uh, things, like other that. fossil fuels, yeah. other fossil fuels, yeah. yeah it's yeah, that's right. So yes, we're we're tinkering with our planet. You know, we sure are. Good. 
Yeah. No, no, and we can't wind it back now, so we're going to have to learn to live with it by the sound of things. Mm. But, uh, yeah, that's a fascinating story. You can read all about it in the Cos- uh, on the cosmosmagazine.com website. This is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here, and Fred Watson there. Let's just take a little break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. As I mentioned last week, I've been on the road, so I've been staying in... Uh, hotels and apartments for the last two weeks uh, as we travel, uh, firstly for a family holiday, and now I'm at a, a, a wedding, a wedding for my uh, my niece. Uh, last night we stayed in a place called Coffs Harbour, and we stayed at a, a little um, place just out of town that had the worst internet that I've experienced in recent times. It was chronically slow, and everything kept dropping out. But uh, I thought I'd try something and switched my VPN on, and all of a sudden, I got a seamless connection. Now, how that works, I don't know, but uh, my wife kept in, uh, insisting on using her phone on 5G. I decided to stick with the Wi-Fi network with, uh, within the, um, uh, uh, the confines of our uh, apartment, and I had no trouble accessing pages and uh, the things that I was using, and she continually had trouble accessing her pages. Um, that's not a coincidence, I don't think. Anyway, uh, that was uh, that was because I was using NordVPN and she chose not to at that point. I'm sure she'll change her mind next time, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> we have a special offer for you as a Space Nuts listener because NordVPN's got a special deal for you as a listener through an exclusive uh, URL, nordvpn.com slash spacenuts. Now, when you go to that URL, you'll be welcomed by a page saying that there is um, an exclusive deal, save big on NordVPN, plus get an extra four months, four months extra, along with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. So uh, check out the deal. There's all sorts of packages available, all sorts of products that you can add to the deal if you want to uh, take it a step further. Uh, Just click on Get Nord VPN, and it will give you the rundown of what you want to do. If you just want the basic service, you can get that, or if you want all the bells and whistles, you can get that too. That's what I get. I I love it. I particularly love the uh, um, uh, system that that basically holds on to all your passwords, the cross-platform password manager. I highly recommend that. It is a ripper. Anyway, take a look at it. I, I've been using it for uh, well over a year now, and I'm very, very happy with the, uh, the products that NordVPN offers, and I think you will be too. NordVPN.com slash spacenuts and uh, click on get the deal 30 day money back guarantee and if you sign up you get an extra four months as a space nuts listener that's nordvpn.com slash space nuts now back to the show Three, two, one. space nuts now fred to our next story and this uh, involves some planets orbiting a sun that is not like uh well not unlike ours a sun-like star if we want to call it that Uh, But there's a little bit of a difference. We're uh, kind of enjoying our day in the sun. These planets will not. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, You're absolutely right. This is a story about a sun-like star. So it's always, you know, stars come in many different varieties. Mm. But so whenever we talk about stars like the sun, 
you're kind of really talking about the sun itself as well and um, you know what might potentially happen to it, what's happened to it in the past and things of that sort. Because um, what happens to one star of, uh, of one particular class and mass and uh, luminosity is likely to happen to another one as well, according yeah. to our best understanding of stellar evolution, the way stars and, and evolve. what class is our star? Because I... I... I keep well, it's 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 usually called a yellow dwarf star, uh, right? And uh, that's um, you know it's kind of not a very complimentary description, uh, no. but it's because it's not a giant star. Giant stars are big, and the sun will evolve into a giant star, but at the moment it's not. It's a yellow dwarf. Yeah, uh, it's still and it's still growing up. It, it's actually. Um, it's in its. It's not its growing up phase. It's in its um, midlife. In right. fact, it's almost exactly midlife. About five, four point five seven billion years old, and it's probably got a lifetime of around about ten billion years. Okay. Um, so yeah, the, the stars go through a very energetic, youthful phase where all kinds of things happen, and then they settle down uh, to a, a, a slow, steady hydrogen burning. Uh, uh, phase, which is what the sun is in now, if I remember rightly, it's six million tons of hydrogen it burns every second, uh, turning it into helium and energy. Yeah, so so it's <laughs> it stopped stealing cars and getting drunk, and now it's uh, it, relaxed. That's right, it's relaxing at home. It's, <laughs> indeed, it's got its feet up and it's reading the paper, uh, <laughs> and um, it will do that for another probably four four billion years or so before it, it does start turning in, into a giant star. Mm. Uh, so what we have here... Well, that, that happens to humans too. As you get older, you put on put on a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> Swell in all the wrong directions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just like stars do. And get red um, in the face. <laughs> yes, yes, that, that's right. Sometimes it, you do. So mm. um, uh, the star is a, a star actually relatively close by. It's 57 light years away. It's one that's very, very well studied. Okay. Uh, there's a very famous uh, UK Schmidt telescope uh, image of it and its surroundings. Uh, it is called uh, Rho Corona Borealis, which Ooh. means it's in the constellation of uh, Corona Borealis. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's uh, as, as you've said, the, the difference between this star and the sun is just one of maturity. Uh, so... Yes, we're 4.57 billion years old. Our Corona Borealis is probably more like 9 billion ah, years old. And okay. That means it's sort of in the last phases of its normal life. So it's a normal star at the moment, mm. but it will, I mean, well, it, it will continue to be a normal star, but it will behave differently from a sun-like star. Yeah. So it will start to grow uh, and turn eventually into a red giant, possibly uh, with a diameter in the region of, well, the sun's diameter is a million kilometres. This one could reach 10 times that, you know, 10 million kilometres or maybe even a billion. It could go that far up to be a huge bloated uh, a bloated star. So um, they estimate this will happen in uh, something like a billion years. It's actually a, a single author paper, this, um, which is in... Um, uh, it's in the Astrophysical Journal, one of the well-known uh, mm. journals of astronomy. Uh, Stephen Kane is the author from the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences in the University of California, River Riverside. Uh, but what makes this star in even more interesting, Andrew, is that it's got four planets around it, or at least four planets. Uh, we know of four planets which uh, orbit Rho Corona, Corona Borealis. They're all nearer to the 
uh, planet than we are to the sun. Uh, the nearest one, uh, in fact, the nearest two are well inside what would be the orbit of Mercury in uh, in the solar system. So they're very close to Corona Borealis. Mm. So they're definitely doomed. Yeah. Um, there, there's one about the distance of Mercury. And the furthest one is 80, 83% of the distance of the Earth from the sun, 83% from uh, Corona, Corona Borealis. So in that regard, Andrew, as that star sits at the moment, mm. um, that particular planet, Rho Corona or Corona Borealis B uh, D is the the name of the uh, of the uh, basically um, sorry it's Rho Corona Borealis D is the name of the of the planet that's nearly at the same distance as the as the Earth is from the Sun that could be in the uh, habitable zone it could be in the Golden yeah, so yeah. of Rho Corona Borealis so interesting stuff um, but um, what has been the focus of this particular study. Uh, is looking at what might happen to planets as a star grows into a red giant. And it's not just a simple kind of gobbling up, which is what you might expect. Um, it's it's a lot more nuanced than that. And uh, it, it may well be that there are sort of irregularities in the bloating of the parent star, and that's going to have different gravitational influences on on the planets going around it. And so um, what they're suggesting is, uh, you know, they, they yes, they may, as the star grows, simply spiral in uh, towards the star, mm. um, but that would almost certainly mean that they would, they just, because the temperature of the, of the, uh, the, gaseous envelope that they're falling into is high, they'd just basically evaporate. Um, that they could also, uh, you know, it depends just on, on the geometry. There is something called the Roche limit, uh, which is um, it's basically a, a point uh, around any object in space. And the Earth has a Roche limit as well. Uh, you put something within that limit and it cannot stay in one piece that the difference in gravity between one side of it and the other is going to pull it to pieces. That's the the, the basis of the Roche limit. And so um, and it's almost like um, spaghettification in a black hole. It's that kind of phenomenon, Yeah, the fact that things are getting stretched. So you try and stretch a planet and it basically falls to bits. So um, the... Um, uh, yeah, that, so the, 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 they may just evaporate or they may get torn apart uh, by... Um, there uh, by the uh, you know by by the by the gravitational uh, uh, effects of it reaching the Roche limit. Um, there's there's uh, one caveat though uh, that is if you've got um, bigger objects, um, there then there's a chance that you might um, influence the orbit of that planet in such a way that it actually gets thrown out of the system. Oh. Um, it, it's possible it be, that... It becomes could, a rogue planet. Yeah, that's right. That it that it, its its orbit kind of starts stretching uh, and pushes it further away from the star, uh, which may, you know, you then... You know, it probably depends on there being other planets there that we don't know about yet as well. You mm-hmm. could have interactions between those, which might then cause this, you know, something to be thrown out. Uh, so... 
you know, that, that, that would be a really interesting possibility. This paper actually looks in great detail about the possibilities for planets to escape uh, depending on their, you know, depending on their exact orbit. It's a very detailed, uh, very detailed uh, report uh, in, well, first of all, the original paper that I mentioned, but also there's a, a Universe Today uh, article on it, uh, that excellent website, which uh, gives us space and astronomy news, and it really pulls this whole thing to pieces in a very detailed way. Mm. Uh, so what are the chances? Well, maybe. Maybe there'll be a, a you know, the, I mean, the, the, the prediction for that system uh, which which actually comes from the original paper is the evolution of stars through their progression uh, on the main sequence. That's just gobbledygook for for a no- normal star uh, expansion into a giant star and then final contraction into a white dwarf has profound consequences for the orbiting planets. Given the masses and semi-major axes, that's the distance from the parent object of the four known planets. We predict that planet E will evaporate within the stellar atmosphere. Planet B will spiral in and be tidally disrupted. That means it will be pulled to pieces. Uh, And planet C will be evaporated within the star's atmosphere. Um, Planet D's fate is a bit less certain. Mm. Uh, That's the one that could could spin out, but it'll probably be destroyed too at the end of the uh, uh, of one of the phases of evolution. Uh, and, and as I just mentioned, there, it's possible that there might be other planets that haven't yet been detected. Uh, yeah. We don't know that they might survive or not. Do, do we know what kind of planets these are? Uh, no, I think um, at least one of them. I think is a. Uh, let me just check because there is a little table here. Right, uh, but they're they're oh uh, okay. So uh, one of them is um, is Jupiter sized. Oh, okay. Uh, the others are super Earths, basically. Right, sub Neptune super Earths. Yeah. Okay, so they're all yeah, bigger so, than us. Yes, they are. They're all bigger than uh, than the Earth. That's right. Mm, okay, uh, and th- and yet they're closer to the. Star than yes, than that's we. right. That's often the case in um, in what we see, what we see uh, in you know in in exoplanet systems. Mm. Um, it's it, it really fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating paper because it does look at possible scenarios for what might happen to us. Oh, that's nice to know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in about five billion, four billion years time. Yeah. So yeah. Um, and put, put when it, in your diary, when it goes from being normal to you know, cataclysmically large, and then back or back uh, a white dwarf. How long does that process take? I think it's um, it's in the region of you know millions to ten millions of years, which is pretty fast compared with the lifetime of the star of ten billion mm-hmm. years. Uh, so, and, and in fact, I think the the earliest parts of that process start start maybe a few hundred million years before it's really a fully fledged red giant. Uh, so you know, temperatures will change and things will start happening uh, over a, over a long period, probably very slowly. So nobody notices at first, and then a few million years later, you think, "Oh yeah, here we are. We're in trouble now." But let's say there is a there is a people on one of those super Earths, and they're observing their star. Would they get any telltale signs that something's about to change? Would there be a way of detecting um, the, the the star saying, "All right, I'm running out of petrol. I'm going to blow up." Yeah. Well, yeah, um, there are, and um, I'm not an expert on stellar evolution. I've got I've always got the basics of it in my mind, but um, 
uh, it's a slow process. There's just a slow indication of of increased radiation from the star uh, mm. before it really starts going pear shaped. So should we should we be putting out the welcome sign or the uh, nothing to see here sign or whatever we can? <laughs> well, fifty seven light years away, um, uh, you know, at standard sort of spacecraft rate, it's going to take them a few hundred thousand years to get here if mm. they if they thought that the Earth looked like a nice juicy place to to settle on. Um, and you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thought, of course. These planets uh, are going to be much older than the planets in the solar system. So they might have, because the star's older, so they, they could have had population of species on them that simply aren't there now because of yeah. already, you know, not just climate change, but maybe the drift of planets Planet orbits do move very slowly uh, over periods of uh, tens to hundreds of millions of years. So, mm. uh, yeah, they may have already had problems in terms of uh, of the, the way their solar system has changed shape. Okay. Uh, all we have to do is put a sign up saying um, we've moved into the Anthropocene period. So, you know, if you want to come here, that's up to you, but it's not going to be yeah, very nice. Watch out. Hmm. Uh. <laughs> All right, uh, so doomed planets, uh, yeah, nothing to see there. Uh, that's another one we can scratch off the visit list. Uh, you can yes. um, read that story uh, on the Universe Today website. Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Okay, now, Fred, time to tackle some questions. I've uh, got a couple of audio questions and then uh, a really interesting uh, email that came in from Duncan that uh, I think you'll enjoy. Uh, it's got a funny story behind it. But uh, firstly, we'll go to a question from Yash. Hello, Andrew and Professor Fred Watson. My name is Yash, and I am living in Toronto, Canada, although I'm originally from India. I've been a big fan of your podcast for a while now, enjoying every single episode. I have a question for you. Uh, in the unlikely event that I find myself alive during the impending collision between our Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxy, I'm curious uh, to know uh, what I am actually going to see at that time. Also, uh, will the collision uh, be a lightning-fast spectacle or a slow-motion celestial dance-off? Moreover, is there any possibility of um, the Earth surviving amidst this uh, celestial encounter, assuming that our planet uh, remains intact? Um, so, can't wait to hear the answer. Thank you. Thanks, Yash. Uh, great to hear from you. I think uh, we've had a question from Yash before. I can't, uh, it, it just seems familiar to me. But uh, we, we have been asked about the Andromeda collision uh, numerous times. So I thought maybe we should revisit it because, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a few um, uh, people wondering what might happen. Uh, his middle questions probably answer the, the question outright. Um, uh, and Yash, uh, look, if you are around for that event, I, I pl <laughs> please let me know how you're doing it because um, that that could be important for all of humanity. Because <laughs> this is not going to happen for um, until week after next. 
Uh, no, a bit longer. <laughs> yeah. so, um, three to four billion years. Which yeah, about, think about three and a half billion years. So, um, yeah, so two big galaxies careering towards one another at high speed, a uh, couple of hundred kilometers per second, if I remember rightly, something like that, maybe 300. It's, uh, it's um, an inevitable collision, we believe. Um, we've, we had results from Gaia that tally with the radial velocity results that we've got. Gaia me- me- measures the accurate positions of, of stars on the sort of face of the sky, as it were. The transverse velocities can be deduced from that. In other words, uh, you can work out the, the true velocity of something, not just along the line of sight, which is what we call the radial velocity. And mm. it looks as though it's an inevitable collision. It's not going to miss. So um, the the bottom line here, Andrew, is that the scale of things that will happen in this collision in terms of the length of time that's involved uh, is is much, much slower than stuff on human timescales. So over a human lifetime, or even a, a, a lifetime of human history, which is a, you know maybe a few thousand years, uh, nothing happens. Yeah. <laughs> even at the heart of the collision, nothing happens. Mm. Um, the, the, the bottom line is the space between the stars is so big that the stars themselves almost certainly won't collide. There might be a few instances where stars are captured into binary orbits or where one star steals another star's planets. But they would, I think, be quite rare because of the amount of empty space. What's not empty, though, is the um, the, the, the spiral arms of both these galaxies, which are pretty rich in hydrogen. And so the thinking is that as the collision evolves, um, there will be gravitational disturbances of this hydrogen, which will cause clouds of hydrogen to collapse uh, and start forming stars very rapidly and high mass stars will live for a short time and then they'll explode as supernovae. So we might see, we might start to see more supernova explosions than we do um, uh, at the moment. So the last supernova explosion in our own galaxy that we could see, there are probably others that have been hidden from us by the dust in the Milky Way. But the last one we saw was 400 years ago. Um, The last one in a nearby galaxy was uh, in 1987. That was supernova 1987A uh, in the Large Magellanic Cloud. So um, all of of that, uh, um, you know, could could produce some differences to the environment. Uh, But my guess is that you know, in general terms, the Earth would be likely to be relatively unscathed by this, unless one of the stars nearby turned into a supernova and you know irradiated us with subatomic particles. That's mm. not impossible. Um, but the, uh, the, uh, the the odds are that as a as an observer, it would be very spectacular at any given time. You know, the, 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 this nearby galaxy getting closer and closer. You wouldn't. We wouldn't see it changing on a human timescale. We simply wouldn't see that. We would just see a snapshot of the of of the events. But yes, imagine the Andromeda galaxy in covering the whole of the of the southern sky. Sorry, the northern oh, sky. Yeah, uh, it would be it would be pretty phenomenal, and it would cover a lot of the southern sky as well. So, um, th- and that would be get more and more spectacular. Uh, but 
you, you wouldn't on a human timescale worry about it. If you could see it, you'd say, well, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and maybe it means we're colliding and maybe things will get a bit hairy down the track, but for us, it's not going to affect us. So it's certainly not lightning fast, which is what Yash was saying. It's yes. a long, slow process. Uh, and just a final footnote to this. Um, there are simulations online. Uh, mm. You can check and see a video of what actually happens, uh, what will happen. And it looks as though, um, you, you know, there'll be a collision. The two, the stars of the two galaxies will pass through one another. And then uh, the, the spiral arms will start getting disrupted. It won't be a neat and tidy spiral galaxy anymore. Uh, but then it rebounds and you've got, you know, the things sort of squashing around. They, they, they pass through each other again, maybe two or three more times before settling down to a, a galaxy which will be devoid of hydrogen by then because the, the, the gravitational interaction will use up all the spare hydrogen and you, mm. so all the stars start you know popping into supernovae. But um, at the end of it, of course, you get a galaxy which we now call Milcomida. Milcomida. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, all right. Thanks, yeah. Yash. There's a, there's a follow-up question I just noticed that came in on an email from Jarrah. Uh, who wants to know in regard to the um, uh, combination of the Milky Way and Andromeda, what happens to their respective black holes? Will they merge? And he's got a dad joke final line that says, uh, you'd think that Jarrah would know. (laughs) Jarrah would? Jarrah would know? Yeah. Yeah, good one. Um, So what happens to the black holes? Uh, in the end, they would merge. I think that's the, yeah. the general understanding that they they would merge because of their relative gravitational attraction. Mm, okay. So yeah. So um, well, Jared should know now. Yes, fascinating thing to look forward to. Uh, or not. Boom, boom. Okay. Um, thanks, Jarrah. And thanks to uh, Yash. Uh, let's move on to a question from Buddy. I, I threw this one in because uh, I thought that's it, an interesting question because it, it creates a question in my mind, which I will ask after we hear from Buddy. Hello, Space Nuts. Buddy from Oregon again. Okay. Here, here's my thought of the day. Uh, if nothing but Hawking radiation is supposed to escape from a black hole, how does gravity escape? Thanks, guys. Love your show. <laughs> yeah, it's, great, it's an inter- it? it's an interesting thought uh, because we talk about gravity and black holes a lot. Uh, and my question after listening to Buddy is: Does gravity actually escape from a black hole? Um, it's that's a it's a, a well thought question actually. Um, I think. The way Buddy's thinking is running is that um, gravity is one of the four fundamental forces that hmm. operate the universe. It's by far the weakest. It's it's clearly different from the other three, uh, which are electromagnetic radiation and the strong and weak nuclear forces. So uh, the fourth fundamental force, gravity, uh, some people have thought that there must be a quantum version of gravity where gravity is spread by gravitons, and so gravitons will be subatomic particles. And you're right, um, subatomic particles don't escape from black holes, at least they're not if they're photons. Um, 
And so uh, it's a very good question. And I think what it, because clearly gravity does it escape from black holes, but what it, I think, um, what it underlines is that when it comes to gravity, it's a force field. Um, and normally with a force field, you associate a subatomic particle with it. But the graviton has never been discovered. Mm. Uh, we know it's a force field because we know it works. It's, we're all sitting in that force field now uh, as we sit or stand on the surface of Earth. But um, uh, if, if there are such things as gravitons, they clearly can escape the clutches of a black hole. Uh, and so that's a you know it's an interesting question, buddy. And um, I'll try and read up a bit more on that because I think yeah. that's quite intriguing, quite an intriguing idea. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it, it'd probably start another avalanche of black hole questions. We'd oh, why, a, why not? <laughs> we'd been able to escape them for a whole week. Um, <laughs> Nothing escapes a black hole, Andrew. You no, should that's know that. We'll always be talking about black holes. Yes, that's very true. <laughs> Very true. Thank you, buddy. Uh, we will do some homework on that one for you, and um, we'll see how we go. Uh, Duncan has um, sent us in a text. This is a bit wordy, but it's worth it because there's a great story here. William Rudd was a mechanic servicing the backup generators at Tidbin Villa during the Apollo program. He was also a member of the local Highland Band and a skilled piper, and he would often take his bagpipes to work and practice when it was quiet. One particular shift while NASA's astronauts were busy on the moon, Tidbin Biller was the station relaying the signal from Houston to the moon. The story, the story goes that the phone line between the control room at Tidbin Biller and the generator room was open, unbeknownst to Mr Rudd. While merrily practising the pipes, William was told in no uncertain terms, they can hear you on the moon. It sounds improbable. <laughs> It sounds improbable. They probably could without having a radio. It sounds improbable. And the people of Tidbin Biller said it didn't happen. But the people of Parks were not quite so sure. So I have a theory. In those days, there would have been a manual patch board at Tidbin Biller with all its plugs and cables leading in and out of the facility. I imagine the internal communications were also patched via the same board. The feed to and from Houston was via the Intel SAT. Uh, stat satellite but uh, did it go through the manual patch board to Tidbin Billa control room and if it did was the internal telephone system at Tidbin Billa also set up via the same board could it be possible that the distant and eerie sound of William's pipes was heard on the moon <laughs> that's a great question I love those little pieces of um, folklore if you like uh, that's good yeah, stuff I, I, I... Well, you know, anything's possible is the answer mm. to the question. Um, I, I have heard this story before. Um, have you? Not in quite as much detail. Yes, I have, yeah. Uh, bagpipes on the moon. It's um, <laughs> So I, I can't remember who told me. I do know, um, you know, a, pa a passing acquaintance, uh, some of the people who worked at Tidbinbilla during the Apollo era, one in particular who um, came from the same part of, Britain as I do. In fact, we used to get the same bus to school. Oh, um, His name is Mr. Din. I can't remember his first name. That's terrible. Anyway, we used to get the same bus to school, but 10 years apart. So, because he's older than me. Right. Um, so, um, but it's, uh, yeah, so it, it, there's lots and lots of stories. Um, I, uh, I don't know the ver you know the veracity of it. Uh, I, 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 my, probably my best contact 
is actually uh, John Sarkissian, who is a long-term member of staff at Parks, a very, very prominent uh, amateur astronomer, as well as a professional radio telescope engineer mm -hmm. and support astronomer. Uh, and um, uh, he he's written extensively on the Apollo-era work of Parks and Tibbet Miller, so he might know a little bit about it. Uh, next time I see him, I'll ask him about it. What about the bagpipes, John? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, yes, that's right. There were bagpipes on the moon. Yeah. It's it's a great story. I hope it's true, uh, just like I hope the yeah. Mr. Gorski story is true. Yes, that's uh, right. Yes, that's another one. Yeah, the the, fam the fa famous words that uh, Neil Armstrong was supposed to have said when he set foot on the moon, good luck, Mr. Gorski. I'm not going to tell you why he said it. In fact, it's been no, no, no. proven that he didn't, but it's such a great story. No. I, I wish it was true. <laughs> yes. Oh, dear. yes. But we're not going there. It's too too dangerous. We'll be put out to pasture if we, I if think, we say that. I, I, think our, I think our listeners can uh, find it. Yes. Evidence. Some will know. Some will know. Yes. There's plenty There's plenty of evidence online about that one. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks, Duncan. That's, uh, that's great. Uh, that's worth investigating for sure. Uh, don't forget, if you want to send us a uh, an email or you would like to send us a voice message, you can do that on our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. There's an AMA tab at the top where you can send us uh, emails and voice messages or the button on the right-hand side, that little purple one. And have a look around while you're there to um, the various pages we offer, Astronomy Daily, etc. Uh, it's worth a look. Uh, don't forget the shop. Christmas is coming up. Yeah. That's all I can say, really. Um, why would you give something from Space Nuts to somebody and smile while you're doing it? That's what I want to know. But anyway, um, gosh, no more to say. Uh, they're, they're, they're good Christmas presents, Andrew. They are. People, yes. people love them, yeah. You, you, could, you could buy a book and use that to put your coffee on uh, or yeah, something. Indeed, yeah. absolutely. Mm. Yeah. All right. Uh, Fred, thank you so much. We're done for another day. That's great. We made it through another day and we will look forward to other days in the future. Thanks again, Andrew. Take care. Okay, you too. Fred Watson, uh, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts. And thanks to Hugh in the studio for... And that's it from me. Thanks for your company. We'll catch you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. <laughs>